Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, so Akiva, this is Parshas Vayakel, and we are starting at the beginning, or even a little bit before the beginning, because in Parshas Kistisa, we had something really terrible happen. We had the Egil Hazahav, and now in Parshas Vayakel, we seem to return to the to the building of the Mishkan, and it almost seems like nothing happened. And so I think this is an opportunity for a discussion between us about is this a good thing that they seem to ignore what happened or not a good thing? And I'll start by saying it strikes me that when something unfortunate happens in our lives, right, sometimes being able to have normalcy is an important component, right? Uh, as a school administrator and teacher, um, we often know that when students are going through difficult times at home, having the normalcy of school is very beneficial for them, right? Having something that they can rely on, having something that is, that is uh, stable. stable, thank you, is an important component for them. And yet, on the other hand, when something terrible happens in our lives, if we just try to ignore it and put it into our, uh, our, our back pocket and leave it there, it can bubble up to create all sorts of problems. And so, from our perspective, do we think that the Egil Hazahav was dealt with and now they are moving on? Or... Do we think that this is a case where it was put in the back pocket and now all of a sudden it's going to keep coming back to haunt us? I mean, it's a great question, but I'm going to punt it right back to you to start because I think before I can effectively answer that psychological component, I would like you to touch more about the Judaic side of the implications of the eagle because it does kind of keep coming back to haunt us over and over again, depending on what we, we hold with what Chazal say. So tell us more about the implications of the Egel specifically and how that has impacted us perhaps throughout time, depending on where we're at. So it seems to take two different approaches in Chazal, as is not unusual. Um, on the one hand, it seems that it is a one-off event that is terrible, but Moshe and B'nai Israel deal with it and then move on. And in fact, if we look at some of the other things that happen, right, 
For instance, um, when B'nai Israel are told they cannot go into Eretz Yisrael, it doesn't really seem to be based on what happens with the Egil. It really seems to be based on what happens with the Miraglim. And yet, others say, no, no, the Miraglim were just the straw that broke the camel's back, and that the Egil was a component of that. Um, even, even through today, we have people who say that some of the things that are happening to B'nai Israel are still results of the Egil Hazahav, or history likes to repeat itself, and so we continually seem to create things connected to the Egel Hazahav or, or repeat the same mistake by making false leaders, false gods that we then worship. And so there are definitely components of that that exist. So with those two possibilities in place, what can you tell us from the psychological perspective? So let's first start with the idea of it being a one-off, because that's obviously more of a straightforward in some ways. I think if we look at the fact of, okay, was there something that happened that was wrong, that was bad, and the consequences occurred, and then, okay, you had your punishment, move on, and in some ways... Right, we would look at that as a child misbehaving, the parent disciplining, and then, and then, okay, we're done, I'm still your parent, and I still love you, and go on and play, play a game. So if that's the way we're going to look at it, then yes, it should be the one-off, because the truth is, is that the, the onus is then, in many ways, on, on the child to learn from the mistake. Right? The, the, the child makes a mistake, the parent teaches the lesson, the child learns the lesson, hopefully, and the child also learns that you can make mistakes and it doesn't change the fact that I care about you, I love you, and I want you to succeed. So, of course, it should go back to the way it was, which, if that's the, the message, then it makes perfect sense that the Parsha begins with, and now we're back to the story at hand. If we are considering, and we talked a little bit about this this last week, Avi, you and I kind of had a different idea as to whether or not the punishment seemed a bit extreme uh, coming from Moshe, especially when Hashem said, you're right, we shouldn't, you know, destroy everybody. And then the consequence was uh, killing 3,000. If that's an perhaps exaggerated response, then... I guess the question is, is is there an awkward situation now when, you know, well, well, dad just had an overreaction. Everybody go back to eating your peas. That That's not necessarily what happens. And we may want to pretend that that's what happens as the adult, as the parent. But that's not necessarily what the child perceives. And, and in, it, for being honest with ourselves, that's not what we perceive either. And then we go back and we say, hmm, what can I do to make it up? I made a mistake. How do I correct my mistake? And then, of course, we either correct the mistake or, unfortunately, sometimes the mistakes rotate back and forth again and again. So if that's the idea that we're seeing, then, well, maybe, maybe that's why we see throughout the rest of the Torah and, and perhaps throughout our history that 
we do continue to make mistakes over and over again. And unfortunately for us, often they are the same mistake over and over again, right? We, we have the ego where we theoretically didn't have the appropriate level of faith in Hashem, I would say. Forget, the, forget everything else. We didn't have an appropriate level of faith in Hashem. And we know that you already mentioned another time that comes up very soon where we didn't have the appropriate faith in Hashem. And there's another punishment. And then we can look countless times for when we did not have appropriate faith in Hashem. And there have been consequences that I think we could very reasonably reach as to the, Kaddish Baruch says, I keep trying to teach you this lesson and you keep not hearing the lesson. In which case, again, is it awkward? Maybe not, because in many ways, I think some of those punishments, as we see they shift, there are some that are more extreme that we attempt to relate to that. And then there are some that are certainly more on par that, we look back and we say, okay, this is a fitting punishment, and unfortunately we still didn't learn from the mistake, and we made the same mistake over and over again. So I think part of what you've gotten to is the crux of the issue among many of the mafarshim, among many of the commentators, in regard to them trying to figure out if this is something that happens, if the, if the agel is something that happens in the midst of receiving the directions for the Mishkan and then building it? Or was the Mishkan, including its directions, despite the fact that we've read them before the story of the Egel, right? Was the Mishkan in total a reaction to the Egel Hazahav? Right? Because if we look at it as the scenario where, no, we were told to build the Mishkan, and then they build an Egel Hazahav, which just goes to show how much they needed something that was tangible, and now we go and build the Mishkan, then it's returning to everything as normal. Whereas those commentaries that say, no, 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 there are other reasons why the directions were put where they were put, but really everything connected to the Mishkan is a reaction to the Egel Hazahav and the idea that people needed physical representation of God. And therefore, right, not only do we build the Mishkan, which is a physical representation of God, we make it beautiful, and we, and we use all sorts of precious jewels and materials and gold to make it uh, gorgeous, right? And so this idea that the Mepharshim are, are not unified in regard to when the directions for the Mishkan and the building of the Mishkan happen in correlation with the Egel Azahav can be taken back to your, your concept of are they looking at this as a reaction to, in which case, right, there was this major event and now we have a major reaction to, or are we just returning to the, you know, same as it ever was, um, and, and to the regularly scheduled program that would have been in its place. I think that's a great way to kind of sum it up, Avi, that there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, and the beautiful thing is, any way we choose to look at it, there's a beautiful lesson to be learned. And 
maybe that's really the ultimate of what oftentimes we are trying and meant to learn is that there isn't just one lesson. There's multiple lessons. And if you look at it this way, there's a great lesson. And if you look at it that way, there's a great lesson. Some will ask, is there such a thing as giving too much? And the Torah tells us that actually there is. Right? One should not put their own family into poverty in order to give to the shul, the community, the Beit HaMikdash. And I would suggest that no one should give of their time to the point where it negatively impacts their family life or their health. And so we look at not just what people can actually give, but also their desire to give. And in many cases, the desire can take the place of what they actually give. So that doesn't mean I can say, I'd love to give a million dollars to my shul, and now I'm done, right? I still actually have to give. But my desire, my volunteering, my, my commitment to the shul, even if it may not be the same size check or the same number of hours as someone else, can be just as valuable. Avi, in last week's Parsha, we, we hear about the taxation. That's how we're going to count you. They tax the people, a half shekel. In uh, this week, we talk about the donations. And I, I would love to hear more about the idea of donations within the context of Judaism. So I'm going to dive into your area just in a very shallow way, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that there is a different feeling when you are required to do something than when you choose to do it of your own volition. Taxes, for the most part, are something that we are required to do. And so when the Torah tells the people that they have to give machzita shekel, right, the half shekel in order to count them, that is a requirement upon each household, right, each male, to give it so that they know how many people there are for war. This is an opportunity to give on behalf of God. And therefore, it isn't about every person should give the same amount. It is about give nadiv libo, according to the desire of your heart. Right? And for some people, that's, I will give a little bit because it's what I can afford, but it makes me happy. And for some people, it's, I can give a lot, but that doesn't even fulfill me. And so the idea of a meaningful gift is something that's often talked about today in, in philanthropic circles. We talk a lot about giving in a way that is meaningful. And so what happens is we look at this week's Parsha and we really see people who are giving in meaningful ways, right? They are really reaching deep in to give. And one of the things that is most inspiring to me 
is the fact that they're not just giving of their physical resources, but we see people who are giving of their specialization. And it helps us understand that people can give in lots of different ways, right? And so whether you are an artist and you are able to help design something for the Mishkan and help oversee its, its building because you have architectural skills or woodworking skills or uh, goldsmithing skills, all of which were important, or whether it's today and we look at the things that people are able to give to their shuls and to their communities, whether it is the time that they volunteer, whether it is um, specific knowledge because you have a financial background and you can help your shul, whether it's volunteering towards security. There are so many different ways that people can really help in terms of what the community might need. And we should recognize that every time somebody gives, right, it is meaningful. It is hopefully that they are giving what they can. So Akiva, we have all of the actual makings of those IKEA slash Lego instructions that you asked me about uh, two weeks ago. And here we are making all the different components of the of the uh, Mishkan. And it almost seems like, did you do this? Check. Did you do this? Check. Talk to us about why that might be important. You mentioned last week that the, the building of the Mishkan took roughly a year, right? And it's a lot of work. A lot of instructions, it was a lot of steps, it was a lot of work. And I think an important part of the message is we often, when we set goals for ourselves, think about them as I completed my goal or I did not complete my goal. I finished the Mishkan, I did not finish the Mishkan. And if I, unfortunately, we often fall into the trap of if I completed my goal, I am a success, and if I did not complete my goal, then I have failed. And with a big task, with a monumental task, if we look only at the end result and ignore all of the steps that we took to be able to achieve said goal, then we feel like a failure until we don't. And if you feel like a failure long enough, you don't finish. And we see this a lot. I see this a lot of people who will set these monumental tasks, these monumental goals, and they'll say, I didn't do anything. I didn't reach my goal. I didn't do anything. I never got there. And I have oftentimes reminded them that it can be a very overwhelming thing to go from A to Z. There's a reason that between A and Z, there are 24 letters. And so breaking a task down into a smaller subset of tasks 
helps you to be able to not only organize yourself with a monumental task, but also acknowledge what you have and have not accomplished. It's not simply a suggestion of saying, well, I didn't do anything and I really didn't do anything, but good for me for thinking about it. Mm, I don't know if you get credit for that always. But at the same time, every day you, that you haven't finished the proverbial mishkan does not mean that you did nothing. This is, this is something that we know, and, and many of those who are most successful have, have acknowledged this. Many of those who have achieved a variety of, of successes, of goals, will say, it started with this. And we have all these cliches, right? Uh, a million mile walk begins with the first step. I don't know if that's the exact amount, but let's go with it. Uh, even... Neil Armstrong's, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, right? It's an acknowledgement that this was one piece of a lot of pieces. And the more that we can incorporate that and the more that we can look at whether or not we have moved in a trajectory that is positive, have worked on checking off some of those boxes to reach the end goal, the more likely we are to reach that end goal. I think that that exactly is what the Torah is trying to teach us here. It's not to have, okay, that's check, that's check, good job, good job, good job. But yet at the same time, it is exactly that to teach us that when we set a large goal, break it down into small bite-sized pieces and acknowledge your accomplishments along the way. So bearing that in mind, as, as I found that every once in a while it's nice for us to not just explain what the process is or what the, what the understanding is from a Judaic side, but I'm going to give some practical recommendation, suggestion. Uh, oftentimes when I have someone who's telling me that they're having a hard time accomplishing their goals or completing a task, I will often suggest them get some kind of either composition book or spiral-bound notebook, something where you can write down one task on each page. And then break said task up into a number of smaller, more achievable tasks. That does a number of things. One, it helps you to see what you're accomplishing, of course. And two, it helps you to not have a huge list of things that you need to accomplish, which essentially is still going to make you feel like you didn't do anything, even if you crossed five off of a hundred list. doesn't feel as good as crossing off an actual task, tearing out a page, so to speak. So with that in mind, I guess the next piece is, is many of us are reluctant to do things like set out five-year plans, 10-year plans, even though, of course, again, all of the experts will say, have a one-year plan, have a five-year plan, have a 10-year plan, know where you're going in this world to know where you want to go. So perhaps, armed with this knowledge, might not be a Shabbos activity per se, but you have the week, maybe consider that the challenge instead of the question for this week. The challenge is, Start to think of a, of a set of goals 
whether it's a one-year, five-year, ten-year, three-month. Maybe you have something you want to do by Purim or Pesach. Set something as a goal. See if you can break it up. See if you can figure out how to make it start to be more achievable. Good luck. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.